Hello, this is Russell Brand. Thanks for joining me on Under the Skin. Well, you're not on it, you're just listening to it, but your participation is necessary. In fact, if you don't listen to it, does it even exist? If you want to see me do my Shakespeare show, have a look at my website or social media feeds because I'm performing in Bristol and Northampton, a live show which I know you will enjoy. Today I'm going to be talking to David Rudolph, made famous as the public defender who defended Michael Peterson in the uh, Netflix documentary The Staircase, a phenomenally successful documentary. Uh, It's a really great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I'll tell you a bit more about it. But but first, coming up over the next few weeks on Under the Skin, we've got interviews with Dear Khan. Tony Robbins, Dear Khan is actually hung out with jihadis and clansmen and stuff, she's pretty amazing. Tony Robbins, the personal development speaker, blind boy out of the rubber bandits. Marianne Williamson, the philosopher, personal development person. Loki, the rapper, he's bloody good. Gabor Mate, them lads, the happy pair from Ireland, they're coming up soon. Also, Joe Shetty, Radhanath Swami, Teresa Chung, Candice Owens, and a lot of people from, as I say, across the political spectrum. We've got some interesting characters. You've got to check Under the Skin. You've got to subscribe to Under the Skin. You've got to stay with Under the Skin. Now on to David Rudolph. I found him to be a very warm, charismatic, and lovely man, like a lovely, warm, brown-eyed uncle. I actually didn't want him to go. He was most illuminating on the staircase and the concept of justice more broadly not only criminal justice but social justice i hope you enjoy this podcast it's a good one let us know what you think stay in touch with us on social media see you later now it's time for under the skin trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route yes that's 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 exactly right we're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss doesn't look like an ideology What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin. I'm here with David Rudolph. David, I mean, it, it will be a rare interview indeed that doesn't commence or at least uh, to some degree attempt to exploit and, under, and understand your relationship with the Michael Peterson uh, staircase component of your career and i suppose this is no different thanks for joining us thank you for having me i appreciate that but how do you prefer to do it would you prefer that i sort of plow into the staircase or shall i try to get sort of a better understanding of you as a human being i mean in a sense isn't a lawyer a storyteller that has to construct an appealing story a story that's more appealing to a jury than the other story regardless of truth Uh, i think a lawyer is not just a storyteller uh a lawyer is the writer, uh, the producer, the actor, uh, the uh, editor uh, mm. of the entire narrative. Uh, so it's putting together a, a uh, play, if you will, uh, that is presented in court. Uh, so, you know, I don't think that the truth uh, as truth necessarily is ever presented in a courtroom, I think what you get is an approximation of truth because you're depending on people's recollections, uh, you're, uh, you're depending on people's biases and prejudices and what they remember and how they remember it. Uh, so the best you ever get, I think, is an approximation of truth. And the lawyer's job is to uh, shape the narrative so that it makes sense and approximates the truth as well as it can be approximated. Does that ever bring you into conflict with your 
own personal morality the uh, the idea that you are constructing an appealing and attractive narrative rather than dealing with directly with truth it doesn't because um you know my truth is uh is to help the person that i am representing so you know people talk about how can you defend those people I'm not sure defend is the right word. Uh, you know, for me, it's more how how can you help those people? And and then the question becomes, how can you not help those people? Uh, you know, I'm meeting people in the worst moment of their lives, generally speaking. Uh, and so they come to me and they are scared and they're um, uh, uh, panicked mm. uh, and they're seeking help. Uh, and so my job is to help them. Sometimes that involves going to trial uh, and trying to show that they are not guilty of what they're accused of. Most of the time, it consists of trying to ameliorate the consequences of what they've done. So sometimes you acknowledge that they are, to use the legal parlance guilty absolutely but that you want to mitigate or in, as you said ameliorate consequence of like what plea bargaining prior to trial absolutely and not necessarily just plea bargaining but but the sentencing process um you know uh when somebody comes to me uh you know normally i i don't expect people to tell me the truth the very first time they meet me um they don't know who i am they don't trust me uh, and, you know, if they've done something really bad, uh, that makes it even harder to tell the truth. You know, it's hard to admit to someone you uh, you trust uh, that you've done something bad. It's almost impossible to admit it to someone who you don't know. So my job uh, at the very beginning uh, is to build trust. Uh, and and a lot of that is really nonverbal. It's, it's, you know, sort of how I relate to the person? You know, do I appear to be a judgmental person or not a judgmental person? Uh, so I'm trying to build trust. Uh, I never take what my client says to me in a first or second or third meeting uh, as the truth. Uh, and oftentimes the truth comes out in dribs and drabs, uh, which is how life is. Um, and, uh, you know, by the end of the process, if they trust me, uh, I've gotten as close to the truth as I can get with them. And that's what I tell them. I, you know, For me, it doesn't matter whether they did it or didn't do it. Uh, for me, what matters is that they need help and that the only way I can help them is if I really know what happened. You must be continually flirting with the, the type of existential crisis which memorably occurred in The Staircase and, in fact, I think is my favorite moment when after the guilty verdict of Michael Peterson was returned there's you a footage of you being interviewed presumably in your office saying it makes me doubt the justice system it makes me doubt my own abilities it makes me I, I enjoyed that moment because you we, you know we've already talked on uh, about the idea of truth that seemed to be an extra and I know that you know when I've spoken to documentary makers and sort of and in a sense filmmakers in general truth is what they're after uh, like you know the, the the makers of the staircase would have wanted authenticity honesty realness and for me that was a moment where it seemed you were delivered a tremendous personal crisis that made you on camera you looked like a man who was reevaluating your understanding of reality 
it was uh, it was a devastating moment in my life. Um, and you know, as I look at myself uh, in that in that scene, um, what I realize is how vulnerable I'm feeling at that moment. Um, uh, you know, uh, it's it's not. Uh, lawyers tend to have egos. Uh, you may have noticed that. Yeah. Because um, of the performance aspect. I think so. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's 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 not necessarily easy to drop that mask uh, and uh, and let people uh, see that you're hurting. Uh, but yet, uh, I think at that point I was I was so um, so devastated by the verdict that. I didn't care about the mask or about how I appeared. Um, it was just, it was raw emotion at that point. Because you thought you'd done enough to establish at least reason, as you say in the scene, you'd done enough to establish at least reasonable doubt. Yes. What does it make you feel? That, did the subsequent episode of The Staircase in which, you know, the dubious evidence of the forensic scientist was uh, exposed, do you think that, do you think those were the integral components or do you think it's a sort of a, something deeper in the human psyche that led to that guilty verdict? Um, I think, uh, well, let me say what I think it's not. I don't think it was the evidence of Michael uh, murdering Kathleen that led to that guilty verdict because there was virtually no evidence uh, that he had anything to do with it, um, other than the fact that she was found at the bottom of a foot of stairs in, in the house. Um, I think uh, the prosecution in that case made up for a lack of evidence by character assassination uh, and by uh, introducing irrelevant and prejudicial evidence about other things uh, to just turn the jury against Michael as a human being. Because, yes, that's, I suppose, how it seemed in the documentary, though, again, there is a distinction because we are discussing different, necessarily different tracks of reality. You're discussing something that you empirically experienced firsthand, and I'm discussing a televised narrative. And the function of that television show, I think, was to keep the viewers perpetually questioning whether or not Michael Peterson was guilty. And we, like the jury, as the audience of the show, when it comes up, oh, this other woman died at the bottom of a staircase in Germany, that feels like, oh, well, this synchronicity is too much to bear. And again, due to our, uh, um, you know, to speak for myself, my own kind of social prejudices, oh, well, he has uh, affairs with men, like during the marriage, well, that must mean something. Right. It's, it's very difficult to uh, eliminate those pieces of information from uh, your understanding of the situation. Oh, absolutely, and I think that was true in the courtroom as well. Uh, you know, I think the way reader, the way viewers experience that evidence is exactly the way the jury experienced it. Uh, and uh, the problem is that that's not really evidence of guilt. It's evidence of his moral character, if you're talking about the bisexuality, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, the Germany thing, uh, that's, that's pure um, prejudicial, uh, irrelevant evidence because when you really dig down into it, you know, on the surface— Oh, well, there's one woman found at the bottom of the stairs. There's another woman found at the bottom of the stairs. Uh, you know, obviously, lightning doesn't strike twice. Uh, 
except it wasn't lightning. You know, in the in the Germany situation, it was a brain aneurysm. It yeah. was, you know, and and so the only coincidence, I mean, what really tied them together for the prosecution is, as they put it, Michael Peterson was the last person to see each of them alive. Well, what does that mean? You know, he he dropped uh, he dropped uh, Elizabeth Ratliff off at her house after carrying her back from dropping her car off at a service station. So he drops her off at her house. The next morning, she's found dead at the bottom of the stairs. Does that mean that he killed her? For what reason? You know, what were the motives? There was no evidence that he had anything to do with it other than Deborah Ratliff then coming back 18 years later and uh, uh, rejecting the, the findings of the contemporaneous medical examiners. So, you know, when you really dig down into that, uh, there really isn't evidence of Michael Peterson being uh, uh, responsible. It's more appealing to the lightning doesn't strike twice that we all instinctively believe. Do you think it's possible, as we are familiar uh, with seeing in dramatized courtroom cases or documentaries such as The Staircase, for uh, a jury to conform to the edicts of a court like, oh, don't think about that that's to be struck from the record like how can how can a non-professional jury member be expected to um annex their own impulse to be affected by information that they've heard they can't be uh they they can't be that's the answer to that and that's why judges are supposed to be the gatekeepers Uh, and so uh you know the rules of evidence are designed to keep that kind of evidence from getting in front of a jury because you can't let that in and then expect the jurors to simply ignore it. It's, it's inconsistent with their common sense. Um, and so the role of the judge uh, is to apply the rules, the, the, the rules of evidence, and the rules of evidence say that you can't introduce evidence for the sole purpose of impeaching the character of somebody, for arguing he did it once so he must have done it again. That's improper under, under the rules of evidence. Yet that's essentially what they were allowed to do with the Germany evidence. You can't introduce evidence that he's uh, bisexual on the theory that, well, that means he's the kind of person who would do this um, because that's prejudi- it's unfairly prejudicial. It's interesting, isn't it, that the game of law makes assumptions that are clearly contradictory to human nature, even the most sort of basic tenant of law that we are reasonable that people are governed by reason right i did a when i had to go to drama school i did this speech that's from antigone and the sort of son of creon makes this uh, speech saying don't um you know persecute or condemn antigone all she did was buried her brother's body that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do under the circumstances she shouldn't be condemned in fact she should be a hero now me as a sort of a young actor the way i did that speech was the emotion of it like i was talking to my dad the guy that was auditioning me uh, the principal of the drama school goes no 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 he's like a lawyer he's not like a he's reasoning with a judge that's mm-hmm. what this is i was unable to get my head around that and right. i just continued to do it like a son <laughs> talking to a father but this 
Oh, I did. In fact, the text makes it pretty clear. You know, reason is God's crowning gift to man, and you are right to question me for losing mine. But right. we must be like it's all about the role of reason. But the introduction, for example, of uh, uh, information that is underwritten by our conventional morality, e.g., oh, this guy has sex with both genders. That sort of you know that touches certain cultural prejudices. Um, that has more import than rational information like, well, there's no real evidence that he did it. Oh, I, well, and, and that's true of, of, of life in general. I mean, we're, you know, we, we, I think we kid ourselves that we're rational human beings when, in fact, uh, unconscious thoughts control us much more than we ever thought. And that's being uncovered more and more by neuroscience and, you know, people who are studying, uh, uh, I don't know if you've read The Uncoupling Project uh, about these two Israeli uh, psychologists uh, who, uh, it's an interesting book. Uh, it's by Michael Lewis. Uh, and um, the whole premise is that we make these assumptions and we and we uh, reason in ways that we don't even understand. Uh, you know, our, our subconscious mind uh, does all kinds of things. So, for example, the the fear of uh, losing something uh, versus the uh, potential of winning something, that's not in balance. Yeah. You, you know, it's not at all in balance. Uh, so, you know, people will respond to the uh, the fear of losing much more strongly than the uh, the possibility of winning. Did it use the example of those uh, laboratory monkeys that if you take away a bit of fruit that's already got, it will go insane, but right. if you just don't give it the same amount of fruit right. as another exactly. monkey, yeah. sort of handle it. Or they do Th things like that, yes. Um, so, you know, we're finding out more and more as we, as we study that um, the human brain is a lot more complex than... Than we ever thought, and and the notion that we're purely rational beings is is sort of silly. What do you think is the role of ritual and theater in the process of law? You know, all rise, bang, 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 put right. this cape on, and in British law, you know, wigs and everything. What do you think that's all about? Uh, I think that's about creating a shared normative experience. Um, you know, I think it's about uh, having a a uh, a structure, if you will, uh, that that everyone is supposed to accept, uh, that we're supposed to call a judge your honor or your lordship here, if that's what it is, uh, that um, uh, there's certain norms of behavior. Uh, and I think the, you know, it really doesn't, it, doesn't it at bottom uh, get back to the idea of controlling the process. Yes. Because those rituals, if not arbitrary, then they're actually obviously not arbitrary. They're designed to create and augment certain power structures that Absolutely. benefit some and uh, well, impair I'll, others. I'll give you a good example. In North Carolina, lawyers are not permitted, generally speaking, to stand while they're examining witnesses. Uh, in most states, they are, uh, but in North Carolina, they're not. Uh, and that was because, I think, uh, judges didn't like losing control of their courtroom. You know, as, as an advocate, when I stand up, uh, and this sort of gets to your idea of, of you know, the lawyer as, as actor, if you will, when I stand up, I'm taking control of that courtroom. Yeah. Um, 
And so in North Carolina, you know, they wanted us to be sitting uh, now. Uh, the problem for them is that if I have a piece of paper in my hand and I need to show it to the witness, I have to stand. Uh, and so what lawyers do, what I do, and you see it in the staircase quite a bit, is I'll have something in my hand. Uh, I may not even be intending to ask about it, but as long as I have it in my hand and I ask for permission to approach, uh, I can ask five or six or ten questions, and then I can sort of say, well, I don't need this, and, and, and put it down. Uh, it's a game. It's a game, but it's not, it's not a meaningless game. It's, it's a game... Uh, it's a way of trying to take control of a courtroom to make your point. What aspect of your own abilities do you... Uh, or what, how much of what you do is sort of charisma and very difficult to quantify? You know, like, so it seems like a matter of the law be like research, construct an argument, d- d- distraction, create the, a, an appealing story. But then sometimes some people are just nice to look at and listen to. And you feel like, oh, I probably like this guy and what he's saying. You know, do you feel that's a big factor? I think it's a huge factor. Um, I think if jurors don't like you, uh, it's very hard for them to hear what you have to say. Uh, you know, you, you you have that experience in your own life. You know, if, if you have a negative reaction to somebody, you really don't want to listen to them talk. You know, you just sort of want to, you want them to go away. Uh, so I think it's, it's you know, it's important uh, that uh, jurors can relate to you on some level. And I think the other thing that, that I learned a long time ago is that you have to be who you are. You know, I can't be some other lawyer. I can't go down, you know, to North Carolina and pretend I grew up in the mountains. Uh, you know, I grew up in New York, and, and that's who I am. Uh, and uh, I can't change that. I can I can tone it down, um, and I have over the years. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, I'm still who I am. Uh, and and if I if I get away from that, I think people pick up on the inauthenticity. This perhaps is applicable more broadly across life, even if one senses that there are aspects of your nature that may not be beneficial in your advancement. In the end, we have no choice but to be truthful because a life of uh, imitation kind of becomes unbearable. I, well, I agree with that. And, and I think ultimately it's not successful because, uh, you know, I think the one thing that we're probably pretty good at as human beings is sensing uh, somebody faking it. I was fascinated by how particular it becomes, like juror number three, she don't like us, like that kind of thing, how particular it becomes, and like we've got to sway that person, she'll be swayed by X, Y, Z. You know, it becomes very sort of bespoke, doesn't it? Well, um, you know, as when we're picking jurors, uh, the way at least I view them is there are certain jurors who I consider to be fillers. Or they'll just go with the flow. Exactly. They're not going to affect the jury deliberation. Uh, one way or the other. Um, so I don't worry terribly much about the fillers. Well, how do you identify a filler? Uh, by talking to them. Uh, and, and What's the key attributes of a filler? Uh, the key attribute of a filler is um, a, a sort of a timid personality uh, who doesn't seem to express any views in any sort of a strong way. Um, you know, just just that sort of mousy person who's sitting in the corner, and you just sort of know 
uh, that uh, if if things get rough, they want to avoid it. Uh, yeah. yeah, conflict averse. Exactly, exactly. Um, if you want a few of them. Oh no! As I'm happy, I'm happy to have as many of them as we can. How many is ideal in twelve? Uh, twelve fillers. <laughs> well, no, no, because you need at least one leader. Yeah, you need a leader. <laughs> now, with the leader, that's where you're thinking, right? This guy's. I myself am a bisexual and <laughs> continually being accused of pushing people down the stairs exactly. and I've had just about enough of it. Exactly, exactly. And and generally you're going to, you know, you're going to focus in on and there's going to be three or four people uh, in any group that gets selected of 12 that are not going to be fillers. Uh, and, and they're going to have various degrees of, of leadership qualities. Uh, and, you know, this is all sort of armchair psychology yeah. as well. Uh, although, you know, interestingly enough, now with social media, uh, we get to, uh, you know, if you if you have the resources, you start looking at people's social media and you get really interesting insights into their into their uh, ways of thinking. Right, um, they like this, they attended that rally. Exactly, exactly. Um, but um, so you'll get three or four people who you think these are people who can really affect the deliberations so there's this whole you know there's the theater of the case itself whether it's the famous staircase or any case then there's this secondary reality that takes place annexed off over there where the 12 jurors go off and in a sense that's you can't really can you can influence but not control absolutely. what takes place there absolutely and well and here's a good example uh, so in in the Peterson case, there was one juror in particular, uh, an older black man, who we just got the sense all the way through was really skeptical of the prosecution and their theories. Or just just rolling his eyes. Yeah, going, exactly. Oh, it's all body language. Right. Um, anyway, uh, so, and it was pretty, I think everybody in the courtroom sort of got the same sense. Uh Anyway, so the jury goes out to deliberate, and in North Carolina, they're not sequestered. They don't, they don't have to stay in a hotel or anything. They go home. Uh, well, uh, over that next weekend on a Saturday night, uh, apparently this juror got stopped by the police uh, and accused of uh, driving while intoxicated, which he claimed he wasn't. Uh, he got arrested, uh, and we went into court that next Monday morning, and the DA stood up and moved to excuse that juror uh, on grounds that uh, the juror had had uh, uh, been uh, uh, resistant to the police, that he was going to be angry that he had gotten arrested, that he couldn't be fair to the state, uh, and succeeded in getting that juror uh, knocked off. The juror who took that person's place was a white female about the age of Kathleen uh, who was an engineer, which Kathleen also was. Uh, and we found out later, and, and the, jury was, the jury was split at that point. It was, I think, three guilty, three not guilty, and six undecided. Um, and then once a new jury joins, they have to, quote, restart the, the, the deliberations. I don't know quite how they do that, but they're supposed to do that. Um, and that juror ended up being the foreperson of the jury, the one who came on, uh, and she ended up leading the charge to convict Peterson. Um, so, and for all we know, they deliberately arrested that guy, and the whole thing's constructed. That the, the thought 
crossed my mind more than once. Because it's a game. Because it's a game. And it's a game that's so convoluted and so much of the process is not explicit. So much of it is masked, necessarily masked, that yes. you're subject to influences that are very difficult to account for. To the point, in fact, where not only your own attitude to truth, which seems very sort of actually quite Gnostic and beautiful, like oh, it's not my job to to ascertain truth it's my job to serve which sounds like kind of a spiritual and beautiful idea in the end it becomes like there is no objectivity at all only power and how power can exert itself and well that's certainly true in the criminal justice system is it uh you know we we've seen that time and time again with all these exonerations of people uh, who spent decades in prison and then you know the dna testing establishes that they weren't guilty. Uh, so why, why did they spend all that time in prison? Uh, uh, and generally, it's, it's because of the arrogance of power. It's because the police decided that they knew, better, knew best and that person was guilty. Uh, and then tunnel vision sort of kicks in. So you have a combination of arrogance and tunnel vision. Uh, and... Uh, uh, they ignore the evidence that's inconsistent with their own theories because they're arrogant and they have tunnel vision, uh, and they inflate the importance of the evidence that is consistent with their predispositions. Wow. It's called confirmation bias. Mm. We all suffer from it. Yes. It's just particularly pernicious in the criminal justice system. In a sense, power cannot admit to its fallibility extensively without undermining its foundations. Uh, exactly. I mean, if uh, if if the authority is not infallible, then it loses its authority. Yeah, then we'll just choose some other authority then. Right, if right. this is infallible, and that's very curious. Uh, a few things that are a bit scattergun. One, um, so is it not relevant to you? Were there not times where you queried Michael Peterson's guilt? Are there like times where you felt like, well, who else could have done it then? Who's got into that house for that? You know, were there times when you did that trouble you? No, it, it honestly didn't, and 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 the reason it didn't. Did it, you really sort of sit from a position of that could happen to me? It could have been me in my garden. Someone could have just come in, or the wife just fell down the stairs. Was that sort of your perspective? That's always my perspective. Right. Um, you know, I, I always, uh, for better or worse tend to put myself in the place of the person I'm representing uh, as I'm trying to understand the case. So if it's a case, for example, where somebody in fact did something that's terrible, uh, my tendency is to say to myself, all right, if I had grown up like that person, if I didn't have the verbal skills that I have to express myself, but it only could express myself physically, uh, and had grown up in a culture where violence was sort of endemic. Mm -hmm. um, how would I have turned out? You know, uh, if, if I had been in that person's situation at that moment in time, how would I have reacted? So that's how I tend to see conduct uh, as 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 really part of a person's overall experience. Uh, and so, you know, for me, for example, we talked earlier about. How do I represent people like that? Well, uh, if I'm understanding where they're coming from and what they've gone through, then my job is to explain that and try to make a judge or a prosecutor feel what I'm feeling. Not because the person is going to, quote, get off, but just to put it into context so that they're not judged by the very worst thing that they ever did in their life. You're a very empathetic person then. 
I think I am, yeah. In a way, I was thinking about this before interviewing you, that doesn't it in ultimately, hmm, how to explain this idea? When you start to contextualize uh, erroneous or specifically criminal behavior and look at the circumstances and conditions that lead to criminal behavior, doesn't that in, uh, at its, doesn't that the teleology of that argument take you to a point that undermines the very notion of individual culpability, i.e. any of us deprived of uh, you know, the correct social conditions ultimately will do what we need to do to survive. Anyone that felt that feeling of jealousy might kill someone, anyone that was that enraged. In a way, doesn't it start to challenge the very idea that it's, that individuals are responsible for their own actions, that we're in fact a sort of a conglomeration of energies and it's only quite superficially that we're even to any degree individuals? No, I, I don't, I don't, th <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. Um, uh, and, and the reason I don't think so is because no one is excusing the behavior, and no one is saying there ought not be consequences. We're talking about what is the appropriate consequence. Uh, and, you know, do we need to lock this person up, for example, for the rest of their life? Do we need to execute the person? I mean, because in the United States, we still have capital punishment. Uh, so, uh, you know, let's assume the person did this. Uh, you know, I'm representing somebody right now who's on death row at San Quentin. He's been on death row in San Quentin for 36 years. He is an amazing artist. Uh, he, is, he has done incredible artwork while stuck in death row in San Quentin for 36 years. Um, he committed this crime uh, when he was 19 years old. Uh, you know, does that person deserve to be put to death now? Uh, 36 years later, uh, when he's a completely different person, and it was his first felony. I mean, it was, and it was a crime of passion. So, you know, what I'm looking at, or what I'm trying to look at, is how do we how do we appropriately sanction conduct uh, that we can't live with? I mean, we can't all go around killing people, even if it's our passion that that took over. But, but. You know, recognizing that, what are the consequences, and what are the appropriate consequences, uh, and and how do we want to how do we want to judge ourselves as a society uh, in terms of our mercy and and our and our forgiveness? Well, these concepts such as mercy and forgiveness are, it seems to me, whether unconsciously or otherwise, not especially promoted within the judicial system. It seems that it's more. Punitive. Punitive. Yes, it yeah. is. Like prisons, not meant to be nice. Yes. We're going to execute people. Yes. Is it like, so those, whether or, so what, having practiced law for, did you say 44 years? 44 years. I presume that you entered into the profession with a degree of idealism and perhaps an interest in sort of truth and justice and those kind of concepts that have, it don't seem to have been particularly eroded, even if they have become more sophisticated. Um, do you think that, what do you think about the justice system in, say, for the United States, let's start with? Um, I, I think it's become uh, much less uh, personalized, if you will. Uh, and I'm not sure that's the right word, but in, in 1987, uh, in the United States, we adopted something called the Sentencing Guidelines. 
And uh, the uh, idea uh, behind the sentencing guidelines was that people who commit the same conduct should be treated equally, which is sort of what you're getting at when you say, well, you know, if you started bringing in mercy and justice and, you know, how they grew up, then aren't we really sort of undermining the whole system? And, and, and that was the idea. You know, if somebody commits a, an armed robbery, he should be treated exactly the same as this person who, treat, who committed an armed robbery, except they're not the same person. You know, one person might be committing the armed robbery because he's got a starving baby at home who's going to die if he doesn't have food. And so he goes out and because he doesn't have any job skills uh, and he robs a bank uh, to try to help his, his child. The other person is a, you know, drug addict uh, who, uh, you know, is, is uh, uh, in need of money uh, for no particular reason other than he wants to feed his drug habit and, uh, you know, maybe he's a gambler or whatever it is. And, and that's, a, you know, so there's, a mor- there's not a moral equivalency there. I've had dry- I've been I know, I know, and I, I was thinking about and that. I've I, had I, babies. Well, I'll tell you, the baby is a more destructive force. <laughs> <laughs> you want to look after that drug habit <laughs> before the baby. The baby's going to cause all sorts of chaos. But what I mean is, it, but even in that example, David, the, there's the scale. It's impossible. To, everyone is on that scale somewhere. Even if it was like the bank robber, it wasn't a drug. He was just like a nihilistic Heath Ledger in joke. Right. style almost performance artist but like bank robber right. and you know and friends of mine actually that do more sort of prison service than me would say if you go to prison there's no criminals in there it's just mentally ill people and drug addicts <laughs> well that's 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 probably well that's not quite true uh, I think there's then the group of innocent people who are neither mentally ill nor drug addicts. They're just caught in the system. So there's innocent people, the mentally, <laughs> mentally ill, and exactly. Drug addicts. I, I, so we can we can debate those three categories. Don't you think that even in our this conversation that you and I have been having, that you already start to expose such sort of ridiculous idiosyncrasy in the system to almost make its foundations untenable that you, you're not con- consider that the, the, the ideas of mercy and justice are secondary to the functions of power that the rituals themselves if not arbitrary are set up in the service of power that truth is almost is, is obfuscated to the point of irrelevance that it's like whether in the famous case of yours the staircase or in other cases it becomes a kind of a charade a kind of a game that has components such as sort of charisma and like that tr- truth isn't in a sense relevant i'm not you know this is a time where sort of conservatism and uh, progressive arguments seem to be at peculiar loggerheads where uh, and, and always the sense is we well you know like don't start challenging these institutions because there's much worse things that could happen but it feels to me that so like from listening to you an experienced legal professional that you to even to succeed, you have to have a kind of a glum and trudging acceptance that you're dealing with a awful hydra that fueled by aspects of humanity that are not particularly attractive. You're dealing with people. You know, it, it's a system that is run by people. You know, if if uh, if we had artificial intelligence uh, running the criminal justice system, uh, you wouldn't have a lot of these. Uh, <coughs> idiosyncrasies, as you put them, uh, that exist. Uh, I wouldn't be terribly comfortable with a system like that. So for me, it's not, it's, not, it's not that the system makes no sense or, or loses its meaning. For me, 
the system needs to be flexible. There needs to be a flexibility built in. Um, And then and then it depends on the good faith and good intentions of people because they're the ones who are exercising the power. Uh, and, and, you know, I think the sentencing guidelines, just to get back to that for a second, was an attempt to do what you are talking about, you know, to eliminate all these idiosyncrasies and, and, and treat everybody equally, but everybody's not equal, mm. you know? And, and, and the fact that somebody commits a crime for one reason is not morally equivalent to the fact that somebody commits a crime for a very different reason. So why, why should those people be treated the same just because they committed the same act for very different reasons? Uh, so for me, it's much more of a holistic approach, and, and I think the system has to have flexibility. If it doesn't have flexibility, uh, it can't possibly work in any sort of justice way. Um, so... Uh, I don't. I don't think that the problem is is that the system has these uh, idiosyncrasies. I think the problem is that uh, the policies and the and the objectives of the system have changed over time. You know, back in the '60s, uh, people actually talked about rehabilitation. Mm. Uh, people don't talk about rehabilitation anymore. People now talk about punishment and deterrence. Rehabilitation as a goal. Of uh, of this criminal justice system has been lost. Yes, and how can we ever exempt this uh, mentality to uh, and this uh, bias towards deterrence uh, and uh, and punishment from privatization of prisons? Whoa! And and like the judicial system does not exist in a va- vacuum. It's continually subject to the influences of culture at large and we how could it possibly be exempted from the broader objectives of society to put it simply to maintain existing power structures and to continue to serve them where possible and to eliminate any ideas that challenge those power structures and that's where i think the role of the criminal defense lawyer comes in because i think that does become, in some sense, uh, in a real sense, the goal of the system. Uh, And it's why, for me, uh, being a criminal defense lawyer is so incredibly important, because uh, we are the people, not just me, but and not just in the United States, but all over the world. We're the people who ultimately are, are the last line of defense there. We're the people who are pushing back and saying, wait a minute, uh, you can't do that just to maintain your power. Uh, you can't ignore the rule of law just to maintain your power. Uh, and, and so I think that is a problem, uh, and it is, it is something that uh, those of us who choose to do this take really seriously, that, um, you know, that we're, we're here to, to push back against that, and that's how I've led, led my life. In a sense, while while acknowledging the complexity of the judicial systems and the almost innumerable factors that add to it, e.g., there is no sort of there's no relativism even in instances where the same crime is committed by different people. You must, on some level, believe quite deeply in some invisible principles such as justice and mercy. Typically, conventionally, traditionally, these very ideas have been 
underwritten by religious authority like e.g why why have mercy why have justice why not just let power function as power functions on its relentless march to total dominion the what we are referring to when we say justice fairness mercy is that there is some invisible ideal some innate sense that there is goodness, something worth preserving, that you stand as the last line against this formidable monster that will devour all before it. How do you resource personally your belief and faith in those ideals? What tells you they exist and that they are worth fighting for? I think what tells me is is uh, the consequences of the of the opposite. Um, uh, you know, I don't want to live in a world uh, where power ultimately uh, controls everything and mercy and justice and fairness are, are lost. Uh, I don't want my daughter or my sons to live in that world. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, for me, it's I'm not a black and white person by any means, but that's one area where I, I, I tend to be black and white. I, you know, I think either either you have a system where the powers are kept in check uh, by people like me and by laws and by the rule of law, or you have a system where you know one of your citizens can walk into the into the uh, Saudi consulate in Turkey and be chopped to pieces. Uh, you know, that's isn't that sort of the ultimate. Uh, expression of the power of the state, uh, and and uh, for me, that's such a horrific uh, possibility that I, I would I would be remiss in my humanity if I didn't fight against that. Um, now, having said that, you know, because one of the questions that uh, your staff sort of put to me earlier uh, to think about was where does this all come from in me? Um, you know, I, I'm, I grew up in an upper-middle-class home. You know, I, I didn't fight poverty as I was growing up. I didn't grow up among uh, people who were disadvantaged. Uh, and it was an interesting question for your staff to ask me. Um, and I thought about it on, on the road up here. Um, and I think, although I'm not a religious person, um, I'm Jewish, uh, and the Jewish faith uh, and culture, and, it's, and I think it's more than the faith, I think it's more the culture, is, is unusual in the fact that we are taught to question authority as a principle. You know, I mean, there, when, you, when you study the Talmud, I've never studied it, but when you read about people who study the Talmud, what it's famous for are the people who are arguing over what it means. There is no you know, divine or, or uh, single interpretation. People argue about it, and that's fine, uh, and, it's, and it's encouraged. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, when we're growing up uh, culturally, uh, we're taught uh, to give to the poor. You know, that, that's an important part of, of the cultural part of being a Jew, uh, to, to protect the underdog. Uh, and I think it comes from having been the underdog for, you know, for millennial. Um, you think that your Judaism is a powerful influence in your uh, 
love or pursuit of justice? You know, I'm not sure I ever really um, articulated it before. Well, you just did, and we've I, recorded it. I know you did, so now I'm stuck with it, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, I think, and, and uh, you know, I sort of surprised myself with that. Because a lot of uh, like uh, Jewish people don't believe in God. I don't necessarily believe in God. No, that's uh, what I thought. Yeah, no, it, it's not that. It, it's it's not the religion. I don't believe in the chosen people. I find that to be an arrogant, uh, off-putting, you know, characterization. Mm. Um, but there are certain there are certain moral principles that are sort of drilled into us uh, as we're growing up. With do you that think culture. they're drilled into you, or do you think that they are in you and that they are revealed? <sighs> That's a good question. I, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm I'm uh, capable of answering that. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, you're asking me, are they in my DNA? Uh, and maybe so, maybe so. I don't know. Um, yes. You know what? What I know is that there are a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the the civil rights movement in uh, in the United States, for example, in the '60s, were blacks joined by Jews. You know. Uh, a lot of the freedom riders who went down to the south, and a number of them who were killed, were Jews. Uh, there's a historic um, affinity, if you will, between the Jewish people and people who are being oppressed uh, in various ways. My grandparents, uh, you know, came from Russia uh, because they were being oppressed. So all of that, I think, uh, sort of combines in me to create that sort of uh, desire to fight back against abuses of authority. In that staircase, here's a few things that, like, uh, moments that I enjoyed and I want to ask you about. Sure. What about that bit when um, the brother of Michael Peterson goes, I don't think people like David Rudolph, he's too slick. I had to rewind that bit because I thought, you'd seem nice, I think. Well, did you take offense? No, I didn't. Um, no. Um, and I understand what he's saying. I mean, I'm not a good old boy, you know. And, and Was the other lawyer a bit more good old boy? Oh, absolutely. Well, you saw her. I thought right? he was, yeah. Oh, that, the one that was... That, but what about the bloke? I thought he was rubbish. He was a southerner, you know. Right, they like that. He was a southerner. Um, he's a at, judge now. Yes, he is. Um, so uh, I think what he was saying is, you know, you're not really fitting in here. Um, do you think that's? Do you think there's an anti-Semitic uh, undertone to that, or do you think that's not, just not more from, not sophisticated? From, yeah, not from Michael. Um, yeah. But and I don't know. I think it's more of, you know, they're still fighting the Civil War uh, in the in the South. You know, they they haven't ever uh. quite gotten over that. Um, so there's a there's that sense when you move down, you're immediately an ang- a Yankee, and and there's this. So I don't I don't know it's a religious thing. Um, there are some quite deep prejudices. Oh. across that country that are yeah. very yeah and, and yeah and they're breaking down now because of, of the movement of people and the so you know the south is no longer quite as insulated as it used to be uh, my analysis of the uh, oj simpson trial which uh, was that the genius of his defense was that they changed the question from did this man murder that woman to are the LOPD racist? They somehow changed the question. That couldn't be a more clear example of changing a narrative. Is that What's your interpretation of that case? 
Uh, well, you know, Barry Sheck is, is one of my best friends. Oh. Uh, he and I actually worked as public defenders together in the South Bronx when we started our careers. So we shared an office. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So, um, and I actually, when Barry got the call uh, from Bob Shapiro, I guess, to see if he wanted to get involved in the case because of his DNA expertise, he was actually at my apartment in Park City. Uh, and we had a whole conversation about whether he should do that or not. Uh, so uh, I have a fair amount of insight into the OJ case. Uh, and uh, not that Barry's ever told me anything that uh, was confidentially uh, attorney-client. No, just make that clear. Uh, uh, <laughs> really. uh, but uh, here's my, my take on it is the, the reason they were able to change the narrative, you will, narrative, if you will, is because... I think the LAPD planted evidence in that case. Oh. Um, I think... Uh, like the glove. L well, like the blood. Oh. Um, you know... Uh, the vehicle. I can't remember exactly right. where it was, but, uh, you know, Barry essentially proved that, the, that that blood had the preservative in it, which indicated that it had been... Oh, yeah, previously. Exactly. Yeah, in lab conditions. Which also was an issue in, the, in making a murderer. Uh, but in any event, so I think they succeeded in changing the narrative because the LAPD was not content with the evidence they had. Uh, and and I, I'm sure they thought LJ was guilty, and he may have been. I mean, I'm not here to, to uh, defend that. Uh, but once the police start fabricating evidence to try to make their case stronger, even if it's against somebody who is in fact guilty, that creates the opening uh, for a defense lawyer to say, wait a minute, what's going on here? Do Does that line of questioning broaden out beyond the microcosm of the judicial system and out into society more generally? Oughtn't we be questioning the authority of these institutions more broadly? Is that something that interests you, the relationship between criminal justice and social justice and what we can observe within the... Um, you know, even in the three cases that have just come up, O.J. Simpson, Staircase, Making a Murderer, we we see that these institutional powers will do what's necessary in order to achieve the goal. It's not like as if justice is a disembodied thing and we're all in pursuit of it together. It's like, no, it's blue versus red and blue wants to win and red wants to win. It's Absolutely. And, and uh, uh, you know, for me, uh, I think these these sorts of issues... Uh, especially now, uh, have just taken over our entire world. Uh, you know, not just in the United States, but all over Europe. Uh, Go on, what do you mean? Well, what I mean is that uh, I think that, that uh, uh, there's this incredible rush to um, nationalism, and um, consolidating power, uh, uh, a fear of the other, uh, a desire t to have more authoritarian uh, government. Um, uh, so I think this whole notion of uh, power and authority filling a vacuum when people are afraid uh, has, has really... Um, has really sort of taken over in many places in the world now. Uh, what on earth can we do? I think we can be aware. 
and I think we can resist. Uh, and resistance is sometimes uh, in little acts, you know. Uh, uh, I think we can um, uh, elect people who are uh, uh, fighting, who have the, who have the fortitude to fight back against this. Uh, Do you think that this fortitude, when it comes into contact with the system becomes irrelevant in that the system is able to somehow exert its authority and self-preserving instinct in inverted commas over uh, the best will of the individual fortitude of well-intended individuals well i guess i guess we'll find that out i mean that's that's happened at various times over the course of history and sometimes authoritarianism wins uh, as in you know Germany in 32 uh, and sometimes it doesn't um, uh, so uh, I think we're going to I think we're at a pivot point uh, and that may be an overused phrase right now but I, I think um, you know what I have done in the criminal justice system which is to fight back against abuses and to fight for the rule of law uh, is what we all need to be doing now uh, in the broader society. Um, and, and the destruction of democratic norms, which is going on right now in the United States. Is it? Oh, absolutely. The destruction of democratic norms. What like? Well, like uh, we don't, we don't uh, uh, confirm a Supreme Court justice because he was nominated by the president of our opposing party. So we hold his nomination for 10 months uh, so that in case we win, we can select somebody who's going to do what we want him to do. You know, that, that has never happened before, ever. Uh, that, and you're saying that would have been instigated by Democrats as opposed to— No, no, no. That was the, the Republican. You know, Mitch McConnell, the, the leader of the Senate, refused to take a vote on Merrick Garland, who was Obama's nominee for uh, the Supreme Court for 10 so months. So Kavanaugh's subsequent to this. Of course, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's the kind of norm I'm talking about, where all of a sudden now, uh, you know, Supreme Court justices have become political pawns. Mm. Uh, that's really destructive of democracy, because if the Supreme Court loses its credibility— uh, then what do we have to fall back on when we're supposed to be a society of laws that is interpreted by this supposedly impartial Supreme Court? Um, so it's a really dangerous time, I think. Do you not feel, David, that rather than these being anomalies, they are simply the revelation of what has always been concealed by these systems, i.e. when you talk about judicial systems, there is the continued con concealment of power's role, the obfuscation of the kind of idiosyncrasies that render many verdicts irrelevant, or at least dubious, and that, that all power structures, to a degree, conform to these ideals, that they're, they're, they're continued priority will be the preservation of the power structures themselves and the best we can hope for is occasionally that will be revealed in ways that are galling that's an interesting question <laughs> um, I think on a fundamental level you're probably right uh, 
Um, but here's where I here's where I um, have trouble uh, uh, accepting the full premise. Um, even if all we have is an approximation of justice, um, that's an important goal, if you will. Um, it's important for people to feel like they're going to get justice. And indeed, in many cases, they do get justice. You know, the, the system doesn't not work uh, ever. <laughs> um, once you get away from that, you know, once you sort of say, okay, well, that's just a, that's just a fig leaf. Uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to now just rip that apart and we're going to show you that we're really just exercising our naked power. Uh, and we're going to put you in prison without a without a trial, or we're going to put you in prison after a show trial, a, a true show trial. Um, that's a very different system, you know. And and you're right in the sense that you know maybe our system has sort of covered over uh, some of the the um, dynamics that are at play, uh, but. But there's still a role for me, for example, in our system. Yes. Uh, if I lived in China, uh, there wouldn't be much of a role for me in the system. I, I'd probably have to be in prison uh, to be exercising, you know, my opinion about uh, about how things should be. So, you know, while I agree with you that that. Uh, there's a lot that is covered up, if you will, by the appearance of a judicial system that's fair or fairer than it really is. Uh, that's a very different thing than a judicial system that really doesn't exist in any practical sense. My, <clears throat> not suspicion, my fear is that the only reason that we don't have the, you know, imprisonment without trial and execution in the streets type you know the uh, runaway dominion of the powerful is because their interests are never meaningfully challenged that the interests of the powerful are so well preserved protected and obscured that the lower tiers of apparent justice are allowed to function albeit with fluctuations and anomaly mm -hmm. because the true interests of the powerful are able to continue to be met unimpeded. This is, I don't know if this is a cynical view, but it kind of belongs to a sort of a, a popular contemporary mentality, a kind of, sort of post 60s idea that, well, it, you know, that whilst superficially I would agree that Barack Obama was a kind of really appealing, lovely guy and Donald Trump is a sort of grotesque that really the distinction for ordinary American people is negligible. So are you articulating a deep state theory? I'm going with a deep state, <laughs> David. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I sort of get into, I mean, look, you know, this is ultimately happening on the internet. So we're, we're never far from drifting into that type of territory. And perhaps it doesn't even need to be cloaked in such conspiratorial terms, simply that 
power is able to manoeuvre, whether it's in the area of apparent democracy or apparent justice, in ways that pr- pr- protects itself and prevents itself. The sort of, I suppose, the way that... We, what I'm suggesting is that our systems tend to, whilst they may masquerade as being a representative of our better instincts and impulses, it seems that the gravity always is towards our lower impulses, that fear dominates rather than aspiration, that democracy isn't about fairness but the preservation of power and when democracy ever comes near disrupting the narrative of the powerful, then that democracy is impeded, closed down, altered. Well, um, and if you're right about that, which I, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with. Um, but then the question becomes: um, What's the alternative that we're seeking? Yeah. Um, well, if you think about your own successes and your own, it seems unkind to say your own failures, but situations in which you have sure. been unable to exert your intention, it's a more diplomatic way of saying it. I always thought I would like to be a lawyer if I wasn't an actor. I always <laughs> liked the idea of the performance, building an argument, the rush of victory. It's yes. always sort of appealed to me. Do you think I'd better do it, David? I, mean, I, I think it's not too late, Russell. It's not too late, is it? <laughs> um, so, um, oh God, I got so into that ego- egotistical riff that I've forgotten my important question. Oh yeah, like, um, how have you, like, if, where you have succeeded? Don't you feel that it's been as a result of you fighting against this system and all of its corruption? You know, in the example of the staircase and escaping with sort of a kind of bloody diluted version of victory yes yeah i i do but um i think that's exactly what what i've done um and you know i I guess in a sense uh what you're saying uh and i'm not i'm not being critical of it is that i've just helped them all cover up (laughs) their power uh uh, I'm not uh, saying that because that's really sort of unkind because you've done these no. sort of amazing things or whatever but I'm just saying that aren't all of us well, as long as we adhere to the idea that oh well we'll limit ourselves to small victories as individuals me or I'll get involved in some little campaign and help someone or help a few individual drug addicts or a few people without houses or whatever if I settle for that you know as opposed to finding other like-minded people bonding together to really sort of think well how does power function because mm-hmm. my understanding is david that, that sort of as you yourself declared you're approaching the end of your career as a public defender and now you're interested in what the implications are socially for uh, of social justice versus criminal Ab- justice absolutely so how do you transpose your experiences, honestly, uh, as a public defender, into the broader and um, I might imagine more terrifying field of social justice? Uh, well, I think you do it by analogy. Um, you know, um, one of the things um, that uh, I'm going to try to do is to use what I've been able to accomplish within this system by um, fighting back, by pushing back, by questioning authority uh, as uh, examples of what people can do in other realms. Um, you know, all we can ever do is, um, is, is sort of lead by example, I think. Uh, I think it's the most effective way to lead. Yeah. Uh, not, that I, not that I am considering myself a leader in any sense, but I think to the extent that um, 
you know, when I when I go to a theater last night in in London, and I can talk to 450 or 500 people, uh, and they can understand sort of what my struggles have been, uh, and you know, I tell them that, you know, you can go out uh, from here, and you can make differences. Uh, you know, you could be the little ripples from from the the uh, the stone I've thrown in the pond here. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, here are ways you can do it. Uh, I'm trying, I'm trying to inspire, that sounds really self-important. Um, that is why they don't like you in North Carolina. All this pompous grandstanding. I, yeah, no, and I, I really try to avoid that as much <laughs> as I can. I'm joking, I'm joking. Uh, inspire people. Yeah, um, uh, you know, to, to give people a, a, uh, an example of somebody who's led their life uh, in a way that wasn't the easy way, you know, that that I that I succeeded uh, in helping people by fighting back against um, abuses of power. Wow! And and you know that's there's a lesson there that I hope people can assimilate and 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 take into their own lives yes uh, we talked before before briefly prior to this interview about about eric from tell me why he uh, that book was important to you again please yeah well and it was interesting because you're reading a book by him now as well yeah. um which which sparked the conversation um uh, Eric Fromm is, I believe, a social psychologist, um, uh, studies sort of uh, the psychology of, of uh, broad groups of people as opposed to individuals, really. Um, and uh, his, his theory in Escape from Freedom is that people, generally speaking, are afraid of freedom, uh, that it forces them to make choices that are hard. Uh, uh, that it it creates uncertainty in their lives, which creates anxiety. So his thesis, if you will, uh, is that people, in order to escape those fears and anxieties, uh, prefer to be told what to do in a broad sense. Uh, Didn't apply to me particularly. I don't think it probably applied to you. Uh, But I think his theory is that as a broad proposition, um, that's what people are drawn to. So uh, that's his explanation of a part of the of the um, power of religion, uh, that if you're devoutly religious, you have a set of rules that governs every part of your life. Uh, and you don't have to really think, you don't have to think about what do you want to eat on a Friday night? You know, if you're a Catholic, they've told you, you, you can't eat this, you can't eat that. Uh, you know, so they give you a set of rules uh, that control your life, and you don't have to make very many choices. Mm. Uh, and it's the same thing when, when you're getting into authoritarianism. Uh, it's, it's that escape from freedom, which is the title of his book, uh, that now all of a sudden you have this all-powerful government that is telling you exactly what you can do and when you can do it. Uh, and for some people, that's a more comfortable situation. It's hard for me to, to sort of wrap my head around that because it's so antithetical to how 
I feel. Uh, but his thesis, at least, is that, you know, if you look at Nazi Germany, uh, that that explains uh, a lot of the behavior that went on. Yeah, it's curious, isn't it? Because uh, evidently they found it quite relaxing, all that marching and those flags. <laughs> <laughs> but also, apparently, prior to the ascendance of the Third Reich, a lot of people thought, this is bloody ridiculous. You know, like the sort of German intelligentsia, like people thought this surely isn't going to take on. But if enough people are terrified and enough Absolutely. people have got nothing to lose. And, and you know, if you read about the history of the Third Reich, uh and you compare it to what's going on in the United States now, there are some frightening parallels. Yes. I wonder who becomes the persecuted other. M Muslims? Uh, well, I think it's a combination. Um, Muslims and Muslims. No, I think it's Muslims and, and Mexicans. Right. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah, Donald Trump, he's not on the back foot when it comes to criticizing the beloved Mexican folk who yeah. are doing a lot of the toil from what I can work oh, out. Oh, my goodness, yeah. Uh, the hardest working people you'll ever see. It's pretty outrageous the way this functions. By the way, that that thing you were saying about sort of a religious authority and its provision of a series of, sort of protocols that prevent personal freedom and its necessity could be applied to a, a secular conformity in which our in our roles as consumers, in a sense, every aspect of our life is sort of taken care of. You look at your phone, you drive in the car, Absolutely. you sit down, you watch the TV, you do yes. as you're told. Yeah. And it's only really when we challenge the what is possible, only when we challenge you know authority power that we see the the limitations of it is in the sense it's that we are excluded from we exclude automatically the possibility of real change almost ourselves that's perhaps sort of could be inferred from uh from's work uh it, even when you and i are talking about well what would replace the justice system with all of its flaws we sort of come up against the sort of a terrifying edifice as an awful abyss oh god what would it be herman melville your <clears throat> great american writer talks about the fear of the expanse of the ocean in comparison to the comfort of the, he says like a Tahiti of green comfort that is the land and he says is there not something immediate and immediately analogous to the psyche of a man that your identity as an individual is surrounded on all sides by this limitless possibility so perhaps when Frome is talking about freedom and as you said because I didn't know that these are social psychologists and he's talking about the psychology of crowds even in, on the level of individuals we are unwilling to push the parameters of our own psychological understanding our own selfhood to go beyond the shores of who we think we are and perhaps those kind of individual journeys have to be undertaken if we are to challenge the a broader external structures that we always allocate as being the oppressive forces well you know i think i think the people who are um who are most uh, uh I'm, I'm not sure what the right word is who who push the boundaries uh for themselves uh end up being the happiest people uh because they do uh, end up figuring out what they're capable of. Uh, and uh, even if they go through an uncomfortable transition, um, on the other side, uh, there's this feeling of accomplishment and, um, uh, and achievement. Yes. So, um, and, and I, hadn't, I hadn't read that part of uh, Herman Melville, but it's, you know, in, in its own way, it's very similar to what, what Frome is talking about. Um, uh, fear. Yeah, fear. Uh, fear of the unknown, fear of the, of the wide expanse, if you will. 
you know, the wide expanse and what's underneath. Hey, how do you apply your lawyer skills as a parent? Like, are you always thinking, like, oh, <laughs> Terribly. this one's lying? <laughs> <laughs> Terribly. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a pushover as a parent, oh, so, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, I raised three boys who are now uh, in their 30s, uh, and now I have an 8-year-old daughter. Um, and uh, uh, I think I understand the roots of sexism now much better than I used to. How do you mean? Oh, I, because I treat her differently. Mm. Um, and it, it's not anything conscious on my part. You know, I mean, one of my boys got hurt, and it was sort of like, get up, man up, you know, stop crying. And, you know, my daughter gets hurt, and it's, oh, come here, let me hold you. And uh, it's all very instinctual. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I think it's been an interesting and eye-opening experience for I've me. not raised any sons, uh, but I have two daughters. And my older daughter, I um, really, like, try to push her to, like, I... Don't like my wife sometimes wants to put her in dresses or whatever. I go, no, put her in like, don't put her in them dresses. She won't be able to function if she's going into a social situation. Put her in trousers so she can, what, there'll be boys there. They'll take advantage. I don't mean in yeah. that way. I mean, like, I want her to be able to be right. tough and take right. care, you know. Like, so actually, I've had, in a way, the reverse experience, like, of my assumed attitudes towards gender have been challenged because I think, oh, God, I can't have any inflection about her identity mm -hmm. that is prejudicial against yeah, her. Yeah, I, I can't it. imbue it or impose I, it. I get it. I get it. Hey, check out this. My mum was in this terrible car accident, right? Like, she broke her back, broke her neck. Like, she's had cancer six times, my mum. This is about six months ago. She had this terrible car accident. I'm actually using you for legal advice. <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> my next door neighbour, that tree is overhanging our fence. <laughs> it's not that. It's not that. It's a, it's a philosophical point, but that All starts right. from a personal anecdote. All right. Uh, she was in a terrible car accident, broke her back, broke her neck, perforated. So it was just like, the most awful thing to happen to someone of, of her age, to anybody at all. But anyway, as it transpired, she, you know, she was in intensive care. It looked like she was going to die and then she didn't and she's making a remarkable recovery the car uh, the, the car crash happened in a country lane head-on collision the uh, driver of the other vehicle fled eventually he uh, was arrested but there were four occupants in the car so they can't pin down an individual thus meaning you know anyhow this is where it gets curious for me uh, the car firm that uh, the, the vehicle that struck my mother was a rental car the rental car company who I won't name this time <laughs> didn't um, like they didn't have due process in the way they hire out cars right now they've admitted this exposure like meaning like the people didn't have proper licenses right. so they're exposed they're yes. on the line they know that they've already admitted it to the police and stuff but the company that insures them the big corporate insurance company that insures the car rental company right when I talked to the lawyer that represents it, and curiously he said, and I think you'll dig it, he goes, I see myself more as a campaigner than a lawyer. I see myself as advocating for the rights often in, like, you know, for disabled people and stuff like that. He said, I goes, won't like the insurance firm, like be, you know, what of it being me having somewhat of a public profile in this case, when it happened to my mum, it was all in the papers and stuff. I goes, won't like uh, the insurance firm who are currently resisting paying out be sort of embarrassed the, by the negative publicity that they're not paying out. And he said, no, on the contrary, it actually makes them look good because their clientele are big businesses taking out insurance. And when they see that this company doesn't... Doesn't even, roll over. It makes them look good. And that kind of made me feel like that. It was like a little 
miniature epiphany of oh god like you know so like that's interesting the game continues you know it's not again about fairness or justice it's about well you know it's at at the end of the day it's about the profit motive right because if if the if the insurance company is paying out that means the rates are going to go up which means that these big businesses are going to pay more for their insurance on the other hand if the insurance company is uh penurious in paying their claims, they can keep their rates down, and therefore uh, the big companies will pay less. That Now, here's, here's where that breaks down. It breaks down when your mom sues them uh, and gets a judgment of, you know, $10 million pounds, uh, and now it would have settled for a million pounds, but now she's got 10 million pounds, and now the insurance company has sort of uh, hurt themselves. Right. Uh, so that's that's where the the negative publicity would come in, just right. on a purely economic level. This um, is the challenge of having our, most of our systems underwritten by economics, ultimately. Is yes. that the profit motive is always well, implicitly driving. Well, and, and and you know there are certain there are certain endeavors uh, that we have that are just antithetical to the profit motive you know and you raised you know uh, for-profit prisons before yes think about that for a second you know do we really want to have prisons where the the primary motive of the people running it is to make money as opposed to to treat people who are in prison humanely you know treating them humanely is not cost effective necessarily no so, you know, for me, uh, for-profit prisons are an abomination. Uh, I mean, I can't think of something that would be worse. Uh, you know, I think to a certain extent, medical care in the United States has suffered from the same problem. Yes. You know, it's become for even the nonprofits are for-profit in the sense that they have CEOs who are making tens of millions of dollars. Uh, and and they're funding all these expansions. Uh, so, you know, I just think there are certain places where the profit motive can promote efficiency uh, and uh, done in a in a in a humane way. You know, keeping keeping workers, uh, you know, uh, relatively well paid and and taken care of. It maximizes everybody's efficiency uh, and and quality of life. Uh, in other areas, uh, it is just antithetical uh, to what we're trying to accomplish. Yes, it seems there is a massive requirement for regulation, and again and again, when you follow the trail of, well, why does this happen? Well, why does that happen? Eventually, you arrive at that that immovable object that is profit. You yes. arrive there, and the commodification of all forms of life, and as you say, with the uh, obvious example of prisons, that you can't introduce that motive in healthcare. There are areas of humanity that should be excluded from that. Right. Exactly. Mm, that's interesting. Just for, uh, finally, in the show Staircase, it looked like for the second, you know, when he had his appeal trial, it looked like you weren't going to do it because for, I don't know, reasons because it wasn't really sort of on camera. Uh, why did you nearly not do it and why did you do it? Um, I, I uh, pulled away because um, I had I had accomplished my primary goal. Uh, you know, between 2003 and 2011, 
my goal was to reverse the injustice. Um, and so when I was finally able to do that in 2011, to a certain extent, I had accomplished what I had set as my own personal goal. I had moved. Uh, I had gotten remarried. Uh, I had a young daughter at the time uh, who, I guess, in 2011 was uh, a year and a half or two years old, uh, even by the time 2014. And I stayed involved in the case for several years, uh, you know, trying to resolve it. I think I finally pulled out, made that phone call in 2014 when it looked like we were going to have to go to trial. And so my daughter at that point was four. And I, I, the, the prospect of, of doing another trial, uh, a long trial at that point, was just, uh, it wasn't something I could do. But Having said that, I, nev- I, I felt a loyalty to Michael, and so I got him uh, hooked up with another lawyer, a very good lawyer, uh, who I trusted. I told Mike uh, that I would help that lawyer get up to speed, that I would be there uh, to sort of coach that lawyer and, and answer his questions and help him prepare. Um, and I did that, uh, and I did it all the way through. Uh, and then in 2006, 2015, uh, that lawyer that I had gotten from Michael had a stroke, yeah. a really bad stroke, uh, still disabled to this day. Uh, and uh, a woman uh, took over the case, a woman lawyer, uh, who I didn't know. Um, uh, and I went to the hearing uh, that she conducted. Um, and uh, I, I just, uh, I felt like she wasn't up to it. Uh, uh and um, Michael, uh, and at the end of that hearing, you may recall, the judge denies the motion to dismiss and mm-hmm. says, okay, let's set this case for trial. You know, when are we going to try this case? Give me a date. And he's very businesslike about that. And uh, so I went home really sort of depressed that night uh, because the prospect of, of that woman lawyer trying the case was not something that I thought, I just thought she was in over her head. Um, and um, Michael called me the next morning, uh, and he had had the same exact reaction. And you know what he said was, you know, David, I, I really, I really need you to get back involved here. Um, and that's why I did. I mean, it was it was purely a a personal um, commitment on my part to try to see this through to the best end that I could see it through. Because it's. It's just one of those things that's quite sad about watching that documentary is that, that we find him, you know, in that big mansion, a successful philosophical writer, and by the end, I mean, I suppose it's just material stuff, but by the end he's been stripped of all that. Yes, he has, and not not just that, but, you know, his health. I mean, you, you know, you saw him after eight years in prison, and it was, uh, it was sort of shocking uh, to see how he had changed. Yeah, and yet you maintain a essential belief in the possibility of justice being achieved and realized in the face of opposing forces well i think you know in a sense it was now i don't think it was it, it was perfect justice by any means and and i disagree with the prosecutor or the judge who who say well you see the system worked mm. uh, he's out no i i don't i don't think for a second the system worked the system didn't work the system broke down uh, and and really, but for the grace of a few uh, 
circumstantial uh, events, uh, he'd still be in prison. Yeah, uh, we're not that forensic. Exactly, information. Uh, exactly. So uh, for me, the system didn't work. Um, but, um, you know, we got a rough measure of justice by getting him out. And, and sometimes that's the best you can do. Uh, and, and that doesn't mean it's bad. You know, to get back to your point, if, if we have a system where I can, even on the margins, make a difference in someone's life, uh, get somebody out of prison. Uh, you know, he wouldn't be out of prison if he if we were in the Soviet Union. You know, he wouldn't be out of prison if we were in China. So whatever the faults in our system, however much it covers over the power structures, as you put it, which I, I, I agree with, uh, there's still enough flexibility there that I can have a real impact, that I can get him out of prison. Yeah. And that's meaningful to me. Yeah, uh, yeah, it is meaningful. I so, mean, the difference between prison and not prison is a pretty bloody significant one. Yeah. Thanks, David Rudolph. I, I knew I would enjoy meeting you. I knew I would from watching the show. Well, and thank I you. really, really have. It's been lovely speaking with you. Thank Thanks you. Thanks very much. Cheers, man.